One more little note before we get going on the sermon. It really is important to pray your faith increase before a sermon. St. Paul writes, Romans 10, 12, Fides exaudito, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. It's a joint effort. The priest is trying to preach the faith, at least we are. I know that's not always the case, unfortunately, because we live in strange times. But then you pray to dispose it, and your faith will grow. It's a mysterious thing that God set it up in this way, but it is. That is what it is. That's why he sent the apostles to go out and preach. They had to go out and teach nations. So your faith grows by hearing. So that's why it's important to dispose yourself to pray. Anytime you're going to listen to a sermon, or if you have a, a tape of somebody giving a spiritual conference, you listen to Father Harden or Father Crop or something, you listen to those kind of things, you pray beforehand, your faith is going to increase. That's how it works. So that's an, an important little thing that only takes a sec. All right, now we'll get going with the sermon. Since time immemorial, at their funerals and weddings, the Miao people, it's an ethnic minority who live in the south of China, recite by heart a traditional poem that recounts their history. Here's some excerpts from this traditional pagan poem. Quote, On the day God created the heavens and earth, On that day, he opened the gateway of light. In the earth, he made heaps of earth and of stone. In the sky, he made bodies, the sun and moon. Dot, dot, dot. On the earth, he created a man from the dirt. Of the man thus created, a woman he formed. Then the patriarch dirt, parenthetical note, patriarch dirt, what's that mean? Does everyone here realize why they call the first man the patriarch dirt? The Hebrew word for earth, for dirt, is Adama. Adam, that's what Adam means, dirt. Back to the poem. Then the patriarch dirt, dot, 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 pondered the ways of the deity God. The patriarch dirt begat patriarch Seta. Patriarch Seta. After Cain killed Abel, the next son born to Adam and Eve, whose name is given in sacred scripture, was Seth. So, dot, dot, dot. The patriarch Lama begat the man Noah. Now, we know from the Bible that the name of Noah's dad was not Lama. It was actually Lamech. The poem speaks of Noah's wife and then says their sons were Lohan, Loshen, and Jahu. Now, the Bible tells us the three sons of Noah were actually named Ham, Ham, not Lohan, Shem, not Loshen, and Japheth, not Jehu. We'll skip along quickly now. The poem speaks the defiance of mankind stirring up God's anger until, quote, he must come and demolish humanity. So it poured 40 days in sheets and torrents. The waters surmounted the mountains and ranges. But the patriarch knew I was righteous, built a boat very wide. Their household entire got aboard and were floated. The animals with him were male and female. The floodwaters receded. Their descendants established encampments and cities. Their speaking was all with the same words and language. Then they said, Let us raise unto heaven a very high tower. This was wrong, but they reached this decision. God struck at them then, changed their language and accent. In despair, they then separate under all heaven. Close quotes. From this point, they begin to trace their ancestry through Japheth by way of Gomer. Now, Gomer, Scripture tells us, was the eldest son of Japheth. And although they speak of some of their ancestors intermarrying with the Chinese, 
This tells us the Miao people are originally of Indo-European stock. Well, come on, Father, get real. You don't really believe these people remember all this from the poem. It's almost the same as what Moses tells us in sacred scripture, which means what probably happened at some time in the distant past, the Miao picked up this story from the Bible and turned it into a poem. Well, obviously, that is a possibility. Who can deny it? So now we're going to turn to the genealogies of other pagan peoples that also claim to be descended from Noah through Japheth. But before we turn to those pagan genealogies, let's quickly consider just one interesting note from a pagan nation who are not descended from Japheth and who traditionally consider the Miao people to be barbarians. And that's the Chinese. Quote, The ancient Chinese record Feng Su Tung Yi, comprehensive meaning of customs, states that all people on earth that are descended from Nua, close quote. Okay, we'll turn to some other indisputably ancient genealogies of pagan nations that also claim to be descended from Japheth. Genealogies would certainly predate any scriptural knowledge on the part of these various peoples. Per usual cut and paste will rely largely but not exclusively on the work of Bill Cooper. The Saxons. Before their conversion from paganism, the early Saxon records refer to their descent from Woden, who is in turn a direct but distant descendant of a man named Sheaf. Okay, great. So who's Sheaf? The Saxon records explain, quote, The Sheaf was Noah's son, and he was born in the ark. Close quote. Three points with regards to this. First point. This genealogy is kept by pagans who garbled the name of one of Noah's sons. In fact, the later Christianized Saxons never used the name Sheaf. Instead, they always refer to this son as Japheth. First point, then, is that this is a pagan genealogy. Second point, the pagan Saxons are fully aware they're descended from Noah. Third point, the pagan Saxons are also fully aware that there was an ark and hence a great flood. By the way, besides mangling Japheth's name, they got something else wrong. Japheth was not born on the ark. He was a grown, married man when the flood hit. But the Mia and the Saxons aren't the only pagan nations who had knowledge of these events. Quote, Anthropologists have collected at least 59 flood legends from the Aborigines of North America, 46 from Central and South America, 31 from Europe, 17 from the Middle East, 23 from Asia, and 37 from the South Sea Islands in Australia. All accounts hold three features in common. A worldwide flood destroyed both men and animals. A vessel of safety was provided. And only a small number of people survived. Close quote. The point is that even though they must have had some of their facts confused, which is pretty obvious, their legends and genealogies show it, the ancient pagans knew about the great flood and in many instances had explicit knowledge of Noah and his sons. For example, the ancient Welsh traced the descent of their royal houses, pagan Welsh, back to Japheth. What about Ireland? Irish history book speaks of the incredible value which the pagan Irish placed on their genealogies. Quote, The books of genealogies and pedigrees form a most important element in Irish pagan history. For social and political reasons, the Irish Celt preserved his genealogical tree with scrupulous precision. The rights of property and the governing power were transmitted with patriarchal exactitude on strict claims of primogeniture. 
pause for a minute to make sure all the young people know what primogeniture is. What does that mean? It means the right of inheritance and succession that belongs to the firstborn. Usually we're speaking of the firstborn son, okay? So primogeniture means the inheritance rights of the firstborn. For the Irish, it meant property and it meant ruling power. Okay? Very important. Back to the explanation on the importance of their genealogies to the ancient pagan Irish. The rights of property and the governing power were transmitted with patriarchal exactitude on strict claims of primogeniture. In obedience to an ancient law established long before the introduction of Christianity, all the provincial records, as well as those of the various chieftains, were required to be furnished every third year to the convocation at Terra, where they were compared and corrected. Close quote. Okay, so the pagan Irishman placed a very high value on his genealogy. You can imagine how important this was for firstborn sons. So what do we see in these ancient pagan Irish genealogies? We see that the pagan Celtic kings of Ireland traced their genealogy straight back to a man named Magog, who's a son of Japheth, who's a son of Noah. Okay, so we've looked at the Miao, we've looked at the Saxons, the Welsh and Irish. Now let's take a look at the Norsemen. The ancient pagan Norwegians traced their ancestry back to a man named Woden, that's Woden, and then further back with significant gaps and differences from the Saxon chronicles to an ancient ancestor named Seskef, Japheth, who is the son of a man named Noah. Similarly, the pagan Danes traced their ancestry back through Woden to Noah. The genealogy of the pagan Icelanders does not go back as far as Noah. It goes back through a man named Othan, another version of Woden, but only reaches back to a patriarch named Seskef. That's Japheth again. All right, Father, very interesting. But once again, it's almost the same as what Moses tells us in sacred scripture, which means it's very probable that sometime before their conversions, these pagan nations got their ideas from someone familiar with the book of Genesis. Well, there's just no way. Does anyone here seriously think that a pagan Irishman whose land and rules are at stake is going to let anyone mess with his legal claim to that property? Think again. Or in the case in regards of the Norse, consider this comment from Bill Cooper, quote, It is interesting to examine some of the characters who would have owned this list as their own ancestral tree. For example, in the late 800s, a Viking named Ivor the Boneless committed the pagan rite of the blood eagle upon the living bodies of kings Ael of Northumbria and Edmund of East Anglia. This is a sacrificial rite to Odin. Remember, Odin or Woden is their ancestor, so they actually are involved in ancestor worship here. Of course, we all know him. That's what Wednesday's named after, Woden's Day. Okay, anyway, the pagan rite of the blood eagle was a sacrificial rite to Odin and involved cutting out the lungs of a living man and laying them on his shoulders so they resembled outspread wings of an eagle. Sounds like somebody that works for Planned Parenthood. It was such men as these who counted it an inestimable honor to be able to trace their descent from such patriarchs as Odin, Seskef, and Noah. No friends of Christians these, and it is impossible to believe that they would look on as anyone, Christian or pagan, tampered with their sacred lists in which were enshrined the very ancestral gods of the nations, gods to whom even kings were sacrificed. Close quote. Now, before we review, here's a few more interesting remarks regarding Japheth. Quote, since Japheth 
is the father of all the Indo-European peoples, it would be surprising indeed if his name had gone unremembered among them. As it is, we find that the early Greeks worshipped him as Iapatos or Iapetus, whom they regarded as the son of heaven and earth, the father of many nations. Likewise, in the ancient Sanskrit Vedas of India, he is remembered as Prajapati, the son and ostensible lord of creation. As time went on, his name was further corrupted, being assimilated into the Roman pantheon as Eupater and eventually Jupiter. None of these names are of Greek, Indian, or Latin origin, but are merely corruptions of the original name of Japheth, close quote. Okay, so what have we seen? We've seen that the pagan flood legends from tribe and nations around the world all agree on three points, points which are also perfectly consistent with the teaching of the Bible. Number one, a worldwide flood destroyed both men and animals. Number two, a vessel of safety was provided. Number three, only a small number of people survived. Besides this, we've also taken a look at the genealogies of several pagan nations that had no knowledge of the book of Genesis, but who nonetheless preserved a historical memory of their descent from Japheth and Noah. Now, before we go on, let's stop and ask ourselves an important question. Since there's absolutely no possibility that all these pagan nations got the story from Moses, just how is it that these men from all over the world, from virtually every tribe and nation, got the same general beliefs about a great flood that are similar to those taught in sacred scripture. How is that? Well, it's easy, because it's true. Because it really happened. The reason so many pagan nations retain a memory of this and of being descended from Noah is because they really are. The fathers of the church point out that when we find a situation like this, a situation which men everywhere have beliefs or teachings or customs that are similar to the teachings of Holy Scripture. The reason for this similarity is that when men were scattered all over the world after the town of Babel, they didn't instantly forget everything. They had their language confused, but that didn't mean that they forgot everything that happened before. Okay, but what about the differences? The fathers point out that the differences in the various accounts are a result of corruption by both men and devils except for one singular case, the case of the people of Israel who were preserved from teaching error by a special grace of God. They weren't preserved from falling into error. They were preserved from teaching error. It's an exact prefigurant of the situation in the church, huh? The magisterium can't teach error, but that doesn't prevent members of the magisterium from falling into sin or into error. Okay. So we've been considering a tiny amount, a tiny amount of the extra-biblical evidence for the reality of descent of all the nations in the world from Noah after the flood. Now, someone might wonder, why are we going over a topic like this right before Christmas? Because liturgically speaking, the season of Advent is especially meant to recall to our minds those thousands of years when man looked forward to the coming of our Lord. And because, also, we live in such dismal times now that almost no one believes in the actual historical reality of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Even though it hasn't quit being the inspired, inerrant word of God. God hasn't gotten any new ideas. It's just that we do. So why do we spend so much time with extra-biblical pagan evidence Well, to strengthen our faith in the first place, after all, we've been given this mysterious, amazing gift to believe what God says because he says so. It's extraordinary that we have that gift, okay? 
So we believe and we thank God for that. But more than that, we also want those around us who do not believe. We want to bring them to a saving knowledge of the truth. Huh? We want to be able to remove barriers to belief in the minds of our friends and acquaintances. And this kind of extra biblical evidence is useful in that regard. We want to keep that spirit of the command that St. Peter gave us in 1 Peter 3.15 to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to an account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. And also in the spirit of that command of St. Paul that we find in Colossians 4, 6, to always let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. We need to be prepared to give reasons for the hopes in us, to be able to answer everyone in this present darkness. So we've looked at the pagans. We've considered a tiny amount of extra-biblical pagan documented evidence. Now let's briefly consider the testimony of the fathers. The fathers of the church are unanimous. The Great Flood is a historical reality which really destroyed all of mankind except for the eight saved on the ark. Those eight are Noah and his wife, then his three sons and their wives. His three sons, Shem, Cam, and Japheth. Three sons and their wives. Noah is a new Adam insofar as mankind is descended from him by way of his three sons. The ark, which is a historical reality, is also a type of the church. Just as only those within the ark were saved, so also only those within the church will be saved. That's the fathers. We'll sum up the teaching of the fathers by taking just one representative quote from that great father and doctor of the church, St. Augustine. We can take him for all the fathers just in this one quote. St. Augustine, quote, It could not be plausibly said that the events concerning the flood, though historical, have no symbolic meaning, or that the account is not factual but merely symbolic, or that the symbolism has nothing to do with the church. No, we must believe that the writing of this historical record of the flood had a wise purpose, that the events are historical, that they also have a symbolic meaning, and that this meaning gives a prophetic picture of the church. Close quote, St. Augustine, Bishop, Father, and Doctor of the Church. Okay, now what about Scripture? Well, let's start with the modernists. These people don't believe in the reality of a worldwide flood at all. For example, the commentary in my NAB... New American Bible, it comes complete with a bright, shining imprimatur in the front. The commentary in my NAB states, quote, The story of the great flood here recorded is a composite narrative based on two separate sources. Both biblical sources go back ultimately to an ancient Mesopotamian story of a great flood preserved in the 11th tablet of the Gilgamesh epic, close quote. In other words, this so-called Catholic Bible tells the reader, the unsuspecting reader, that the story of Noah and the Great Flood is a Babylonian legend that has been stuck into the Bible. Guess what? Psalm 95.5 says, All the gods of the Gentiles are devils. What does that have to do with anything? That means that we have a religious epic from devil worshippers stuck into the Bible. That's what that quote is telling us. Instead of the NAB being New American Bible, it should be not actually the Bible. These people do not believe 
in the word of God. These people do not believe that Moses wrote the first five books. They believe whoever it was, this guy that's a redactor that they pull out of their pocket every time you turn around. Nobody knows who these people are. Nobody's even met somebody like that. These guys come along and they can't think of what to do. So they go rummaging through the junk and trash and find a story and clip it out like bad newspaper writings and stick it together and say, oh, God wrote this. In his encyclical on the inerrancy of scripture, Pope Benedict XV gives us true Catholic principle by quoting that great father and doctor of the church, St. Augustine. Now, here's the Pope quoting St. Augustine. Quote, Holy Scripture is invested with supreme authority by reason of its sure and momentous teachings regarding the faith. Whatever then it tells us, that we believe. We believe it simply because it is written in Scripture. And unless we believe in Scripture, we can neither be Christians nor be saved. Close quote. That's an important principle. The Pope is giving his own authority in an encyclical written on the inerrancy of Scripture. It's worth repeating. Holy Scripture is invested with supreme authority by reason of its sure, momentous teachings regarding the faith. Whatever then it tells us, that we believe. We believe it simply because it is written in Scripture. And unless we believe in Scripture, we can neither be Christians nor be saved. This is a Bible. It's inspired, inerrant word of God. It is not a collection of old-time legends. If we don't believe in the absolute truth of the Word of God, if we don't believe in the absolute truth of the Word of God, if we don't believe that absolutely every word in this is inspired and inerrant, then how are we ever going to believe in the absolute truth of every word spoken by the Word of God made flesh? He's alive. Why would we believe him if we can't believe him in here? I didn't make that up. Our Lord uses that exact argument. He poses the same question. Remember our Lord's warning to the Pharisees, quote, If you believed in Moses, you would believe me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words, close quote, God the Son? In other words, our Lord is warning his listeners, if you don't believe what Moses wrote, for example, the story of Noah in Genesis, there's no way you're going to believe what I say. And what our Lord said to those who 2,000 years ago doubted Scripture is just as true today as it was then. He made it perfectly clear in the Gospels, quote, You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Scripture cannot be broken. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Close quote, God the Son. Our Lord himself makes it clear that he believes in the absolute historical reality of knowing the flood. Here's our Lord. Quote, as in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Parenthetical remark. What does that mean? Well, according to the fathers and commentators, in the days of Noah, the whole world was awash in greed, wantonness, 
in purity and sin. Women, quote, disdained their own continence, abandoned their modesty, adorned themselves and became a snare to the eyes of the men, close quotes. And many men, quote, were so effeminate so as to deserve to be called women, close quote. Back to our Lord. As in the days of Noah, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, even till that day in which Noah entered the ark. And they knew not till the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Close quote, end quote. As it came to pass in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat and drink, they married wives and were given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Close quote. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the second person of the Most Holy Trinity. In other words, since our Lord himself believes in the absolute historical reality of Noah and the flood, if we are so stupid as to refuse to believe, in effect, what are we doing? We're claiming that we're smarter than God. But unfortunately, that's common. See, disbelieving in the revealed word of God is nothing new. In fact, that was one of the other major features in the days of Noah. Remember that even though Noah preached the word of God for a hundred years, warning sinners of the great flood that was to come upon them, all the time building this gigantic ark right before their very eyes, in the end, after a hundred years of preaching the word of God, only seven men believed him. Only seven in the whole world. His wife, his sons, and their wives. That was it. And the fathers tell us the sinners actually made fun of Noah and mocked him the whole time. But God says what he means, and he means what he says. They ignored him at their own peril, And we ignore him at our own peril. St. Peter, quote, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, the preacher of righteousness, with seven other persons when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly. Close quote, 2 Peter 2, 5. There were eight people on the ark counting Noah. How about us? Do we believe the word of God? Are we going to be numbered in that tiny group of men, that remnant left who still believe what God says because he says so? Are we? Holy Scripture is invested with supreme authority by reason of its sure and momentous teachings regarding the faith. Whatever, then, it tells us that we believe. We believe it simply because it is written in Scripture. And unless we believe in Scripture, we can neither be Christians nor be saved. The stakes are eternal. 
Unless we believe in Scripture, we can neither be Christians nor be saved.